You know, in the last number of weeks, we've been looking at this study without a doubt, and Pastor has been driving home the point that we can know without a doubt that we are saved. The theme verse that, that 1 John brings to light for us is 1 John 5, verse 13, which says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. And what a blessing that is for us, uh, for those who call God Father, for children through repentance and faith, to know that we know, that we know, that we know, that we're saved. It's such a blessing to know that, and God graciously gives us that through his word as we've looked through the evidences of faith given to us in 1 John. He's been incredibly gracious to bless us with that truth. And this morning, I want to look at uh, God's grace from a, another perspective. And we're going to look at it uh, through a passage in Hebrews chapter 2. In 1 John, we see the fact that we can know that we're saved, and that's by the merciful and gracious redemptive work of Christ Jesus. But in Hebrews chapter 2, we also see the grace of God highlighted for us in that he graciously and lovingly warns us as believers, as children of God, not to forget or neglect this great salvation in Jesus, but rather to be anchored to him and the truth therein. And so that's why I have entitled this morning's message, Anchored. And so we're going to be opening our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, and I encourage you to join me there. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time in verses 1 through 4. Um, but there's a lot contained in this passage, and we're going to need to do quite a bit of work. So let's go ahead and get to it uh, and read with me, if you would, from Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. It says this, For this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard, so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding, and every transgression and disobedience received its just, just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord, and it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles and distributions of the gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. I wonder, would you do me the honor of just quickly bowing with me again as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we open your word, would you be so gracious by your spirit as to give us eyes to see and ears to hear what we need to? Lord, we, we desire not to neglect such a great salvation, but Lord, we desire to, to push into you, to draw closer to you. And I pray that as we work through this passage this morning, that's exactly what would happen that we would be drawn closer to the likeness of your Son for your glory and your fame and the expansion of your kingdom here on earth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You know, as we, as we were reading through that passage, I'm reminded of a story that I once heard. It was, uh, I'm, being, I'm a teacher by my background, and I remember hearing in college about a teacher, and it was... Uh, uh, a little bit of a lesson, object lesson, a teacher who was uh, teaching a class and they were getting prepared and they wanted to show their students or he wanted to show their students a, 
film. Now, this was back in the day before every classroom had a projector and a computer. It was before they even had DVD players or VHSs. It was back in the classroom days when, you remember those old projectors that you had to set up with the spools and the actual film, and you had to feed it through just right, and if you didn't, then it looked all weird on the screen for the students. And it was a wonderful thing. I remember those back uh, in, uh, in my school days. But this teacher thought, well, you know, I've used it before. I'll grab it a couple of minutes before class, and I'll get it set up really quick. And so uh, he did that, and he quickly realized that he was in a bit of trouble. Even though he had done it before, he was, he was putting the film on the spools, and it wasn't quite working right, and he was trying to feed it into the projector, and it wasn't going the way it needed to, and he was losing time. Students were getting ready to come in, and he was starting to freak out just a little bit, and he thought, maybe I've missed something. So he went back to the, the projector's case, and there on the handle was this lovely little handwritten note, uh, obviously from another teacher, that just simply said, before you try it your way, look at theirs. And it, it just made him laugh. He, he, he realized, oh, of course, I need to go to the instructions, right? And he pulled them out and quickly took a look at them, was able to get it set up in short order. But he realized, yeah, of course, the manufacturer knows how this is supposed to work. They know the best way. They know the way it needs to be set up. And, and that loving warning from that whoever that was, that other teacher, was just what he needed to remind himself of the reality that he needs to go back to the one who made it. And it's the same for us in Christ Jesus. We have a Lord, we have a God and Father who has created us and he's given us instruction on how life works best and we need not try to figure it out on our own. We should go back to him to understand what he wants us to be about. And so as we begin this morning, my first point is from Hebrews chapter 2, this idea of a loving warning that comes from Scripture for us. So as we begin, and as we start looking at this loving warning in chapter 2, verse 1, we need to do some work. And the reason for it being that uh, those first three words... Uh, give us, we, ha- we got to spend some time on that. For this reason, that's essentially equivalent to saying therefore. And anytime there's a therefore, we all know that we should ask ourselves, what's the therefore, therefore, right? And so we need to scan back into uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and look at some of the highlights that the writer of Hebrews has given us which will provide the context for our warning in chapter 2. So uh, if you look right at the beginning of chapter 1, verse 1, the epistle begins by saying that long ago God spoke to the fathers by the prophets and at different times in different ways. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. Now this is not to say that God has not or cannot speak to us in different ways other than through Jesus himself, right? He's given us his word. But what it is saying is that in these last days, everything that has been spoken revolves around Jesus. It flows from Jesus. It points to Jesus. It is, it is something that is going to be surrounded and, and all consumed by Christ. Christ is going to be the central figure. It's going to find its yes and its amen in Jesus. He is this incredible one who in the last days God has spoken to us through and we need not neglect it. He is the final, he is God's final and decisive word for us. And if you remember that, that reality of Christ being the Word, right? John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh. 
later on in verse 14, and made his dwelling among us. And what a beautiful thing. This word, this decisive word that has been spoken to us has come from God in these last days. And then uh, following on from that, after he tells us that he's created the whole universe at the end of verse 2, he continues in verse 3 and it says that the sun is the radiance of God's glory. The exact expression of his nature, or maybe your version says the exact representation of his being. You know, this is an incredible reality. I don't think the writer of Hebrews could have done a better job at helping us understand who Jesus is and pointing out that this Jesus, this Son of God, is in fact God. He has, he's made it so clear for us, and we can't get away from that. He's not just some cheap copy or imitation. He is the original article. He is the one who helps us see who the Father is. If you remember our uh, study of the passage in Colossians over the summer, right? Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says that he is the image of the invisible God. There's an old guy, his name is J.B. Phillips, and he talks about how Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. He is God himself. And we see that here in uh, verse 3. And then what we also see is that this Jesus, this God himself, this one that we need to recognize as Lord, that after, in, uh, at the end of verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Now that immediately puts Jesus in a category all onto all on his own. It immediately sets him apart from any other priest of the day because priests, their job was never done. They first had to offer sacrifices for themselves, and then they had to offer sacrifices for the people, and that needed to be repeated day in, day out, year in, year out, and it would go on as long as that priest was alive and in the ministry, and then someone else would just take over from him. But when Jesus came and acted as our high priest, when he completed the task that God had given him, that the Father had assigned him, he sat down because it was accomplished Nothing needed to be done more. Nothing needed to be added to it. And this immediately puts Jesus in a completely different stratosphere than anybody else. And so just from three verses, the writer of Hebrews has done an amazing job at elevating Jesus and showing his superiority, showing his preeminence, his betterness than anyone or anything else. That's the Jesus that we need to know. But then almost as if it were to, to drive the point home even further, the writer of Hebrews goes on and he compares Jesus to angels in the next couple of verses. Now we know that angels, according to scripture, they're creations of God and they're powerful beings and they have many different roles and functions. Some are given over to worship. Others are warriors and defenders. Some are messengers. But the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand that Jesus is not just another messenger. He's not just another created being who has a role. No, no, no. He is God. And if you look at the end of verse 5, it says, The Father declares over Jesus, I will be his father and he will be my son. And then he goes on further and he says about Jesus, this is the one whom he has told, let all the angels worship him. Let me just quickly say, God doesn't share the spotlight with anybody else but himself. 
And to ascribe worship to Jesus is a great testimony to the fact that Jesus is God. And so we have this incredible context brought forth for for us in chapter 1. This reality that he is God, that he is above all others. And so this one who is the radiance of God's glory, this one who, excuse me, this one who has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high is far superior to anything and anyone else. He's far better than any other created being, even angels as powerful and as significant as they are. He's greater than all. And this is the point that we see fleshed out through the rest of chapter 1, and for that matter, for the rest of all of Hebrews. But chapter 1, all of chapter 1 serves as a buttress or a supporting statement for what we see in chapter 2, verse 1, for this loving warning that comes in in chapter 2, verse 1. So look at it with me there, chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard. You could put it like this. Since Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, since he is one who is greater than and more superior to even the angels, we need to pay attention to him. Or to even shorten it even further, since Jesus is God's final and decisive word to us, listen to him. This is the warning, this is the loving, urging, and pleading of Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1. Listen to Jesus. You know, it's interesting, it makes me think, you know, what are we listening to? What are you listening to? Because here's the thing, we're all listening to something. We all make provisions and time and allowances to listen to what we want to. When you're driving in your car, you turn on the radio and you dial into whatever station you want to. Maybe when you're in your home, you do the same thing. You turn on the radio or you you turn on the TV or you decide to stream something on your computer or your phone. We're all listening to something, but what are we listening to? What are we really paying attention to? What are we giving our time to? So often we can be so distracted and so pulled in so many different, various, and downright silly directions. And yet the urging of Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 is that we understand the necessity of paying careful attention to what we've heard. Pay more, pay attention all the more to what we've heard. Now, so let me ask the question, what have they heard? What is the writer of Hebrews talking about? Well, there's a little bit of debate among commentators on this. Some say that the writer of Hebrews is referencing back to Old Testament scripture, right? Which would have been handed down more often than not orally, so you needed to listen and pay attention. Others make the point that they think it's more recent, that it's probably the message that was carried to them more recently to the audience of this letter, either by apostles or disciples of the apostles or whatever. But what I don't think we need to debate about is whichever view you land on, I don't think it's a hard leap to think that Jesus is going to be central in that message. Even in Luke's gospel, when Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus with the two guys, he opened up the scripture from Moses and the prophets, and he showed them where he was in all of it. 
And given the fact that chapter 1 has just declared the preeminence of Christ, I don't think it's a hard leap to think that he's going to be the central point of the message. And so what I think is being said here is that we need to pay attention to Jesus. We need to listen to him. Not be distracted by other lesser things. We need to pay attention to him. And it's an urgent pleading. This is a loving warning. Too often I think we in the church have this idea that once we've heard the gospel for the first time and we've responded initially through repentance and faith, then, well, the gospel kind of then goes away because it's done its work and we don't need to pay a lot of attention to it or maybe even to Jesus himself. But how wrong could we be? Jesus is not only the doorway through the gospel by which we enter into the Christian faith through repentance and faith, the gospel and Jesus Christ are the means by which we live this Christian faith. We need to pay attention to him all the more. We need to give our attention wholeheartedly to him, always listening to him. Some other verses in Hebrews that back this up, if you were to flick over the page or just maybe look across to the other side of the Bible, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. The writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Some other versions will say, fix your thoughts on Jesus. In Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, we have that beautiful passage that talks about, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the one that we are to give our attention to, that we are to listen to wholeheartedly. The writer of Hebrews is making it clear that nowhere or nothing else should be grabbing our attention. We shouldn't be giving it really to anything else bar Christ. He's the one we need to draw our attention to. He's the one we need to consider. He's the one we need to fix our eyes on. And we're exhorted to listen. And this is one of the markers of disciples and followers of Christ. They understand their need and their dependence upon listening to Jesus Christ. And maybe you're in here this morning and you don't understand that. And you think, well, I don't need to listen to Christ. I would argue that if you say something like that, you're merely giving rise to the fact that, or giving evidence to the fact that you don't have a new nature. Because believers, followers of Christ, recognize their dependence and their need to urgently, earnestly listen to him. But let me also say that we're being called to listen. This is not a hard thing to do. We do it all the time. We listen to things all the time. The only thing that would make this command hard is if we don't want to listen to him. But then at that point, that's our issue, not his. And we need to do business with God if that's where we're at. We need to listen to him. Otherwise, we're going to drift away. Don't be distracted. Don't be overtaken by other lesser voices. Turn your attention and your focus to Christ. Listen to him. Remember that God is not a cruel and harsh taskmaster. Some would make him out to be. He is a gentle, loving, and helping father. Remember Jesus' call 
in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, for I'm lowly and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We're being asked to listen. This is not a heavy burden. Just listen. There's a story told of young Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who at about the age of 16, he was one Sunday morning walking to his church, but he had to take shelter in a little Methodist church, of all things, uh, because snow started to fall so heavily that he couldn't get to where he was wanting to go. And at this point in Spurgeon's life, he, his heart was just seething with anger toward God. He went to church because that's what he knew he needed to do and he should do, but he didn't want to. And he was just angry with God. And there, with just a handful of other people, and just a lay preacher, because the, other, the minister hadn't been able to make it in on account of the weather, he sat in this little Methodist church at 16 years of age. And God bless that little lay preacher because he had nothing prepared, right? He wasn't expecting to bring a message, and, and yet he felt compelled to. So he stood up in front of the very, very small group that was there, and he read from Isaiah 45, verse 22. And in the good old King James, it says this, Look unto me and be ye saved. All the ends of the earth, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And Spurgeon reports that this little lay minister, he, he continued to just repeat and repeat and repeat this for at least 10 minutes. Spurgeon got bored that he plugged his ears. But he said and he reported that in the silence, he sensed the Holy Spirit impressing upon him, look how easy this is. All you need to do is look to me. Listen to me. Spurgeon riled against it for a little while, but then eventually succumbed to the beautiful simplicity and ease of the gospel. We're being called to listen. That's all. We're not being called to labor for him. He's not expecting us to work for him. He wants us to watch him, to look onto him. If you remember, John chapter 15 tells us that we ought to abide in him. And when we do that, works will follow. Our lifestyle will change and it will work in a way that is pleasing to him. But we're being asked to listen. And if we're overwhelmed and overcome by other lesser voices and other lesser things, then we will not be overcome and overwhelmed by the grace and love of our God. And we won't fall in love with him. We need to be overtaken by him. We need to listen to him. So two reasons why we need to listen to Jesus. Well, chapter one tells us that he's God's final and decisive word for the world. So we ought to listen to him. And chapter two at the end of verse one gives us a second reason. So that we will not drift away. You know, the word that's used here in the Greek is, gives the idea of floating down a river just going with the stream, drifting on by. And it's an interesting reality because if life is like a river, as this, world, as this verse suggests, then it's a river that, left to its own devices, is leading us straight to hell and destruction. And if we just go drifting on by, then we're headed to our doom. 
But the beautiful hope of the gospel is that God has reached out to us and in a place that is just, when we're just drifting on by, that's going to lead us to our doom. If that's you this morning, hear me. Like Spurgeon, as someone like me preaches to you, if you're listening, the Holy Spirit can convict your spirit of the danger that you're in and by repentance and faith draw you to rescue. That's what he wants to do. That's the hope of the gospel. And if you're in here this morning and you are a child of the king, you've repented and believed and put your trust in him, then let me also point out that it is the Holy Spirit that keeps you from drifting. And when we do drift away, like that old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. When we do that, it's the Holy Spirit that draws us back to safety. And brings us back to him, close to him. We need to stay anchored to him so that we don't drift away. And let me please point out that this is not a warning against premeditated, purposeful rebellion against God. This is simply a warning against just drifting on by. Just neglecting what he's done. And so from a loving warning, we come to a convicting question. Look at verse 2 through 3a. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding, and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, basically what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, you know, in the Old Testament which was given to us by the angels. Galatians makes that clear. The angels were carried along and, and spoke to others, and they then, through the prophets, gave, it, gave us what we needed to hear. If that was legally binding, and any disobedience brought judgment and consequence, how much more do we need to listen to Jesus, given the fact that he's greater than the, than the angels, and he's given us this truth here today. He's spoken to us in this last day. How much more do we need to listen to him? And so with that in mind, you see verse 3a, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How will we escape? Well, this is a rhetorical question by the writer of Hebrews, and the whole point is that we can't. Some have argued that this is the only question that God cannot answer. How can you escape? if you neglect such a great salvation. He can't answer that. Because the only means of escape is Jesus Christ. The only means. There is no other way to look. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We can't. There is no escape if you neglect this salvation. But let me ask us a question. How are we doing on this? How are you doing, church? How are you doing, believers, brothers, and sisters? How am I doing on not neglecting such a great salvation? How am I doing on, I mean, do I really give proper time and attention to just meditate and sit in and rest in the goodness of God given to us in Christ Jesus in the gospel? Or do I just get distracted by other things and drift on by? 
How are we doing on this? And this is serious stuff. This is, life is serious. Life with Christ is not a trivial matter, but let's, let's be clear, let's not confuse serious with sour or glum. I mean, we're not being called to something that is, that is not intrinsically loving. I mean, we're not being told, don't neglect your taxes or don't neglect your modern history homework, students, or don't neglect your veggies, kiddos, if you're like... We're not being called to something that isn't intrinsically lovely. We're being called to not neglect our great salvation. Don't neglect your joy. Don't neglect your hope. This is what the writer of Hebrews is calling us to. Let me break it down. Don't neglect being loved by God. Don't neglect being forgiven and accepted. Don't neglect being strengthened and guided. Don't neglect being helped by your Father. Don't neglect the love of the cross where your sins were nailed forever. Don't neglect the righteousness of Christ which comes only through faith and you can clothe yourself in it and walk straight into the presence of a just and holy God and be met with a smile rather than a frown of wrath. Don't neglect Jesus Christ, who is alive today and offers himself in fellowship to us. Don't neglect meeting together with the brethren, as some are in the habit of doing. Don't neglect all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Don't neglect all the benefits that come with this great salvation. Don't neglect them. And let's look at this great salvation that's given to us. Let's think about it a little bit more from verses 3 B and 4. It says that this salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord. So this great salvation, our third point, the loving warning, a, uh, a convicting question, and a great salvation, it had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord, and it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. At the same time, God also testifies by signs and wonders and various miracles and distributions of the, uh, of the gifts of, from the Spirit according to His will. This great gospel, we need to understand it. We need to understand where this great salvation comes from. It comes from a great gospel, which if you're taking notes, first of all, was announced to us by Jesus. It was announced to us. You can go all the way back to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, where Jesus, after John the Baptist had been put in prison, went into the area around Samaria, declaring the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. It was announced to us by Jesus. It was also confirmed by those who heard, speaking of the disciples and those who heard Jesus in his earthly ministry and maybe were witnesses of the resurrection. It was confirmed by them. It was also testified to by several witnesses, namely, primarily, the Holy Spirit, right? Through the works of the Spirit and his gifts and signs, wonders, and various miracles. Some even go so far as to say that it was testified to by several witnesses, by four in fact. They would look at the fact that God the Father has testified to the truth of this gospel. Right? Insofar as he's the initiator. He's the initiator of this great redemption plan in Jesus Christ. So he is a testifier or he is a, a, a he testifies to the truth of the gospel. Second witness, uh, obviously, is Jesus Christ who announced it, right? Third witness, or third, uh, yeah, third witness are those who heard it. Again, the disciples who confirmed it. And the fourth witness, 
the Holy Spirit. So you have the Trinity right there who testify to the truth of this gospel. It's a great salvation. Why? Because it is great and it's so all-encompassing, but it's also great because it's true. And it has been sufficiently confirmed for us. It's been sufficiently attested to for us. The witnesses have done their job. So we have a loving warning. We have a convicting question. We have a great salvation made known to us through a great gospel. But do we believe it? Do we believe it? Because how do, how do, just explore this with me a little bit. How do these witnesses help us move to a firm place, a firm foundation in our faith? Why are we, if we neglect these witnesses, going to be condemned and held to account so harshly by God? Or, well, how are we going to be held to account so justly by our God? I ask this question because if someone says, well, God told me, you can say, well, how do you know it's God? If someone says, well, Jesus spoke to me, you say, well, how do you know he wasn't a deluded prophet? Oh, but the disciples attest to the fact that they saw the risen Savior. How do you know they weren't hallucinating? Or maybe they were just con men who wanted to make a name for themselves. What about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and miracles? Well, maybe it's magic. Maybe it's the, the devil trying to deceive us, right? My point is, if you want to, you can doubt any testimony given. So how do you move from a place of skepticism to a place of firm foundation and rest in the truth of God? How do you, how do you make that transition? It's a difficult thing. It's a complicated thing. And this passage doesn't fully uh, give it to us. I, I do believe that the writer of Hebrews is hinting at it. I think he's getting at the fact that since God initiates, the Father initiates this great salvation and Jesus announced it and it was uh, confirmed by the apostles and those who came after and uh, the Holy Spirit testified to it through signs, wonders, and various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I, I think what he's getting at is that we should believe because of the cluster of testimonies that we've been given. There's enough testimony to bring us to the reality and the truth of the matter that this is solid. This is a firm foundation to stand on. But again, the problem is that anybody, if they really want to, they can dismiss all of those testimonies and say, ah, I don't believe it. So how do we move? How do we go there? How do we move from skepticism to well-grounded faith? Well, again, I don't think this passage fully covers it, but I'll venture to answer it a little bit from several different passages. If you're taking notes, I'll try to answer pulling a little bit from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Places like Matthew 11, verse 27, and Matthew 16, verse 17. There are two things that I think need to happen for us to move from skepticism to well-grounded faith. Firstly, a testimony and a witness has to make something real and clear. They have to, to make it real and clear. And I think what a biblical testimony ought to do is make the historical and the moral and the spiritual reality clear to us. Whatever this testimony is, it should have historical authenticity and moral excellence and spiritual just beauty in Christ. And it ought to be clear. 
And then on the part of the receiver, the one who's listening to this message, they need to be careful that their minds are clean and that they're humbly willing and ready to receive it. Once John Piper used an illustration to help us grasp it, and he, he did it like this, that he said that the, the, the one who's giving the testimony, the witness to the truth of God's word, and the one who's hearing the testimony is like a plug and a socket. You know the plug, it has three prongs. The socket has three little holes that they go into, right? The witness needs to make sure that those sharp edges of historical and moral and spiritual truth are clear and true. And on the part of the listener, like that socket, they need to make sure that there's nothing obstructing them, that, they're, that it's carefully positioned, that it's clean, that there's nothing kind of gunking up the holes for, for it to be received, and that they are humbly ready to receive this message. And when that happens, when the plug and the socket come together, maybe for the first time, maybe in here, this is you, and for the first time you're getting it this morning, when those two things come together and the plug fits into the socket, that's when the, convi- the f- current of conviction can flow. That's when you transition by God's grace with the help of the Spirit as you understand the truth of His Word from skepticism into well-grounded faith. But make no mistake, this is a miraculous thing that only the Spirit brings about. But we have a part to play in it as we seek to present the truth. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 are making it clear that the witnesses have done their job. They presented the truth clearly. They presented the historical, the the moral, and the spiritual truth clearly. And now it's on our shoulders. It's on our part as listeners to receive it humbly. To cry out to the Holy Spirit to give us understanding, to, to help us put away skepticism, and instead trust wholly in Him. This can only happen by the trans, uh, as we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And thank, thankfully, through the work of the Holy Spirit, we'll grow from glory to glory in Christ Jesus. But it is a miraculous thing. We need to be careful that we don't fill up our minds with junk that gets in the way of truth. We need to be careful that we're not neglecting our great salvation. And so I pray in in line, I believe, with Paul this morning that God would shine a light into our hearts and cause us to be careful and clean and humble, ready to receive with the help of the Spirit what the witnesses have confirmed for us. So that we would receive God's love and great salvation in Christ Jesus and that we would not neglect it and drift away. I pray that rather we would stay anchored to Christ Jesus, moored to that truth in who he is and that we would constantly look to him, the one who we need to fix our eyes on, the one who we need to consider, the one who we need to pay attention to, the one who we need to listen to. Because he's given us a loving warning. He's pointed out a convicting question. And he's given us a great salvation.
that we need not neglect. Amen? Just as we close and as we get ready to finish up, I'll throw some application questions up there for you, and you can take note of those if that's what you're doing. Number one, who are we listening to? I mean, really, who are we listening to? It is really easy for us in church in America to be able to say, I'm listening to Jesus. I raise my hands in church. I say, hey, good morning, brother, sister, big smile on my face. Let me also say, it's also really easy to put on a mask. And to say that we're listening when we're not. If you have kids or grandkids, you know that that's true. Are you listening? Uh Uh-huh. What did I just say? I don't know. Who are we listening to? Secondly, are we fixing our attention on Jesus? Or are we just drifting on by? Hopefully your first answer, the answer to the first question will help you answer the second. And let me just say, if you're in here this morning and you're just drifting on by, in just a few moments after I pray, there's going to be a team over here on your left at the response tables, and they're going to be there to answer questions. And if you have questions about salvation, if you have questions about faith, if you have questions about this great salvation that we've been exploring this morning, then can I encourage you, go talk to them. Or maybe you're in here this morning, brother, sister, and you're, you're realizing by the conviction of the Spirit that you've just been drifting. That yes, you're saved and you, you know the truth, but you haven't been fixing your attention on it. And instead, you've just been drifting. Can I encourage you? They're there to pray with you. If you, if you want to take that time to refocus and plead with the Lord, help, us, help me fix my attention on you. Take advantage of that time during response, if you would. And then finally, my third question to us is, who are we going to go share this great salvation with this week? This is where the rubber hits the road, right? We've got a great salvation, and it is so good, and we've been transformed by it, but we need to go share it. This is not for us to hold to ourselves. This is to be shared. This is to go wide, go forth, and cover the whole earth. So who are you going to share this with? And by the way, I'm preaching to myself as much as to you. I'm trying to think of, okay, what name am I going to go after this week? And if I need to make a phone call so I can do it, I'll make a phone call. If I need to make a a coffee date, I'm going to make a coffee date. Like, who are you going to share this great salvation with? Because we've been given a loving warning by our God not to neglect it. We've been given a convicting question to examine our hearts. And we've been given a great salvation to focus our attention on. Let's share it with those around us. Let's pray as we close. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you so much for your word, Lord. Thank you that you have made clear to us that you have given us such a great salvation and it's found and it's, it's announced and it's all completed and finds its yes and amen in the person of Jesus Christ, your son, the radiance of your glory and the exact expression of who you are. Lord, thank you for this great truth that we can cling to, that we can anchor ourselves to this morning. And Father, I pray that as we seek to move forward, Lord, as believers, as children in Christ, I pray, Lord, that we would not neglect it, that we would not just drift, but that we would intentionally pursue you and focus our attention on on who Jesus is and what he said to us. 
Lord, I pray for anyone in here this morning who maybe they haven't taken that step of faith. Lord, by your spirit, would you be drawing them to to yourself right now? And I pray that they might be bold to get on their knees and cry out to you in repentance and faith. Lord, do a mighty work. We praise you for who you are. We thank you that you are a great and holy and majestic God, but I thank you that you've drawn close to sinners just like us. You've adopted us. You've called us into your family. You've given us such a great salvation. Lord, help us to share it with those who don't know.